Welcome to this week's podcast. Rachel McKenzie, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you. Now, you're involved in a ministry called Rachel's Vineyard. Is that named after you? It's not. Most people think that because of my name. And, um, but it was a real God incident because I shouldn't have even been called Rachel. But um, it came from America, Rachel's Vineyard, and it was started by Teresa Burke. And Teresa Burke named it Rachel's Vineyard because Rachel is in Jeremiah and she's crying for her children and she can't be comforted because she's mourning. So that's where the Rachel comes that's from. That's where the Rachel yeah, comes from. Yeah. And Rachel's Vineyard, what's the main focus of the ministry? So it's a post-abortive ministry. It's to support anybody that's been affected by abortion. So not only the mums, but the dads, the grandparents, the siblings, and also those that have chosen to work in the abortion industry and the wounds that they carry as well. So anybody that's affected by abortion can come to Rachel's Vineyard. Now, I know that you were affected personally by abortion. Tell us your story. Tell us a bit about growing up and to the point when you discovered you were pregnant. Okay, so, so like every abortion experience, it never starts, or any abortion decision doesn't start the day that you become pregnant. Just like voting, you don't wake up one morning and think, oh, shall I vote Labour, Conservative, what shall I vote? And so your abortion story really starts from your childhood. And that's not an excuse, John, but it's, there are things that happen to us that really do set us up to fail. It's a bit like a person, a child that's never taught to read. Certain, you know, certain jobs they'll never be able to go into because they haven't got the literacy skills. And it's the same for somebody that chooses abortion. You know, there's something in their childhood that made them go that way, that they thought that was the only option. And so for me, my abortion story started when I was three. I was brought up in a broken family and my dad had got schizophrenia. And my grandma really hated me, she disliked me immensely, and my uncles were very abusive towards me. And I, I suffered every abuse that there was, you know, from the sexual, the voyeurism, the, the twisted sickness of it, the financial abuse, the spiritual abuse, you know, making out that God's angry. I didn't even know what God looked like. If I ever imagined God, he was always going to be some sort of schizophrenic God. Um, and the physical abuse, but for me, out of all the different types of abuse, the worst abuse was the neglect. It was actually knowing as a child that I wasn't wanted, I wasn't loved, and I just had to find a way of surviving that. You know, I was hungry a lot and I was loved a little. But did you your know? teachers not notice that you were being neglected? No, I'd, I'd arrive at school at eight o'clock instead of at nine. I'd arrive on my home, from home to school on my own from a very young age. Um, I was malnourished, but this was the 70s. You know, and, and nobody knew what abuse looked like. Nobody knew how to deal or what to look out for. You know, I became a teacher years later and I, we know the signs of abuse, but you don't know them in the 70s. The teachers weren't taught that. No, oh, but, but even if they did notice anything, yeah. it wasn't talked about. Not at all, not no. at all. And, and when you think, the psychiatrists say, when you're brought up in, a, in an environment like that, you either became a people pleaser, rebellious, or you became invisible. And everybody always thinks because of my hair, I must have been the rebellious one. But I wasn't, I was the people, I was the people pleaser. And I just wanted to make somebody love me. Because all I ever wanted in my life was to be loved. And I just thought, well, if I can get myself a husband, if I can keep a man, then I can escape this life and have the happy ever after story. 
but I didn't know how to get a man. I didn't know how to behave around men. I just knew that the best thing to do is do anything they wanted me to do. And so, you know, before I knew it, I, I, um, I became pregnant and yeah, I just wanted the problem to go away. I went to a family planning centre of all places and I was asked one question. I was asked, you know, will this affect your mental health? And how do you measure mental health? But I knew to say yes, because I knew I needed the problem to go away. So you, you only had to say yes yeah, in order yeah. to get an abortion? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But they yeah. never asked you or told you the mental effect of having it? No, no. no they never no, warned you about no, that? No, no, not at all. You know, they, they, you know, it's how, you know, how can this be, how can this be killing somebody because this is illegal? You know, how is this wrong? Because it's, you know, when, they, when you're given only one choice, how's that choice, John? Absolutely. How's that choice? Well, you know? Why wasn't adoption given to you as an option? Absolutely. You know, or, you know, just give me some counselling to work through yes. the fear. Give me some time. But the problem was, because I'd left it to the last minute, they were panicking. I just got dazed before it was too late. And so I, I never knew the age that I was. And um, I was being interviewed by the BBC and they said, well, take us back to that time if you can't remember the age, because I just shut down emotionally everything. And I said, well, I got in my car and I just suddenly realised I had a car when I was 18. So I must have been 18 when I yes. went to the abortion. And I got dressed in my school uniform. I went to uh, the hospital because I had an abortion in the hospital. And when I got there, I changed in the bathroom into normal clothes, um, had the abortion, came round from anaesthetic, very sick, all about me. I wasn't feeling well, but the problem had gone. And I just felt relief, just relief. I wasn't one of these women that immediately realised the horrors of what they'd done. I just, I just left relieved and that first stage, that denial. I stuck. I was stuck in denial and anger for decades. You know the anger that used to rage up in me, and just the denial of just put that behind me. I wouldn't work out the age, anything. I just know at the hospital the nurses weren't particularly kind to me. And now when I look back, I have um, God's revealed it very slowly to me because I think I'd have ended up in a mental hospital. Yes. And God's revealed to me that I was actually on a, on a labour ward and I was on a maternity ward. No wonder the nurses, you know, they're trying to bring life into the world and I'm killing my child. No yes. wonder that they looked at me, you know, with such repulsion. And, um, you know, you look back and think, if only they'd stop me. But could I have been stopped? I don't know. I, I have to, John, I have to own it. And I have to know what I did. I, I can't give out blame pies. I have to just eat my own. Sure. You know? Now, you went on and, and did theology. Yeah, I went on to do a theology degree. I, I, as somebody that had no God in my life, um, it was just the most painful four years of my life doing a theology degree. And the only reason I did theology, my dad had got schizophrenia with uh, religious mania. So he used to talk about the Bible a lot. So I just became quite good at it. So, um, yeah, I went on to do a theology degree. And I then specialised in a study on grief. You know how God used all that in that mess. He just knew the plan. He knew the plan for me, you know. You got pregnant again. I did. You see, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And my behaviour is exactly the same. And I was just That's going from... That's an interesting strap line there. If yeah. nothing changes, nothing, nothing changes. changes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. go on. So I, I went on to... Um, I got pregnant for the second time. And I don't know 
uh, how many children I've lost because before the first, between the first and the second abortion, I was taking the morning after pill, like there was no, like paracetamol, and it, and it's abortative. So I've no idea how many children were killed that way. But the second abortion, um, this time, I, you know, the whispers were, well, you're working, you're working in a school, that you know, a Christian school, you're working, talking about Jesus, you're gonna get the sack and your life's gonna end and all this rubbish. Um, and again, I just need the problem to go away. And I also believe, well, you can't go to hell twice. I didn't know I know the horrors, there are depths to hell as well, you know, so pregnant for the second time, but this pregnancy was different because this abortion was different because I was going to be awake. I chose to be awake because I wanted to get out of the abortion centre as quickly as I can. Now, having had one abortion, Rachel, and you knew what happened and how you felt, you still were willing to go through with another one? Well, the first abortion, I was asleep, so I don't know what happened. Do you know what I mean? And when I woke up, I never really woke up. I just carried on walking through life like the walking dead. I think part of me died that day. And when, you're, when, you've, when you've committed such a mortal sin, you've turned away from God so much that, that you don't even know right from wrong. So the second abortion, in many respects, was easier because I've done it once. But the second one, I was awake. I know Abby Johnston in America talks about abortion's got a smell, and it has, and it's got a sound. I'll never forget the sound, and it's got a feeling. The, the, the pain, I can only describe as white light. It was horrific. And I don't even know what it looks like, the blinding white lights of, of the room, the, the indignity. I just tried to, um, I'd, I'd learned as a child to press a button. And that button's called disassociation that I didn't have to feel and you didn't have to know how scared I was in certain situations. I would just be blank. So I lay on that bed with just this blank look, just going away, just drifting off somewhere. And then I suddenly looked to the side and I watched the abortionist counting the body parts. I know now counting the body parts of my baby. Because the ironic thing is, if there was part of my baby left inside of me, that would have killed me. Yes. So he was trying to save me after we both killed my child, you know, the irony. And John, how did I feel? Relief. Again? Know? Again, relief, yeah. Oh, my problem's gone away. Because of, because of denial? Absolutely. Denial and grief, the first two, you know, grief. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I told you I studied grief. So there's five stages of grief. So this is anybody that's, even if you're dying yourself, you'll go through these stages. So the first stage is denial and the second stage is anger. You can bounce from one to the other and then you get depression and bargaining. You know, if I'd have done that, maybe this would have happened until eventually you get to acceptance or as I call it, the truth. And it's only in the truth that will set you free. How did you move through those stages? after um, your second abortion? So I just bounced between them. I look back now, I realised I was bouncing between them, um, trying to fix my feelings with, with bulimia. So I'd be, you know, I used to fill myself to empty myself, fill myself to empty myself. It's reenacting the abortion trauma again. You know, the, the different abortion uh, trauma symptoms, the, the drink, the abuse of drugs that some women and, and men go through. Um, the, the nightmares, the self-harm, there's so many different methods that people use, anything than face the reality of what's happened. And so um, I would go out with men and I, and I had two rules, John. You, could, you couldn't hit me and you, you couldn't have an affair. So anything else went, you know, anything went. I remember once somebody saying to me, you know, why don't you become a prostitute? You know, instead of giving it away, why don't you sell it? 
And even though it was it was a real insult, I actually sat there and thought about that's not quite a bad that's not a bad idea. Where was my head at? Where you know No boundaries. No, none at all. I didn't have any boundaries as a child. You know, where the abuse ended as a child, I carried on. You know, where the beatings ended, I carried on. And where, you know, I was hungry, I carried on, you know, fixing that, you know, with food, eating too much, not eating enough. And so, um where, where did you find redemption? Oh, gosh. So um, God uses everything. So I got redemption with starting with blackmail. So I, I um, that my second rule of men was broken. My boyfriend went and slept with somebody else. I left and he said I couldn't take anything out of the house, couldn't take any of the money. And we had an awful lot of money and no peace. You see, as we know, money doesn't buy us peace. And... I said, well, I want half of what belongs to me. And he said, well, at the end of the day, Rachel, it's about time your mum knew about the abortions. And I just froze. And I just, he would ring me up day and night, day and night. Shall I tell your mum today? Shall I tell her now? And I went back to the house and I signed everything over. And the blackmail carried on. And I couldn't understand why it was carrying on. And I was leaving teaching. This was the actual month that I was leaving teaching. And, uh, you know, God uses everybody, starts crowding the right people in. And the, this wonderful woman who's a really good friend of mine today, she came up to me and she said, Rachel, what's going on? What's going on? And I said, what have I got to lose? I said, uh, spit up with, with uh, this man and he's, he's blackmailing me. I'm losing my house. I'm losing everything. And, and she said, what, you, what over? I said, I had two abortions. And she didn't judge me. There was nothing in her face but like love. And she let me pray with you. And I just thank God to this day it wasn't a witch doctor that asked me to yeah. pray. I'd so gone with just, anybody. So she, so she put her hands on me. She just started praying with me. And um, when it, she finished, I said, right, I said, so my mum's not going to find out. She said, well, maybe God wants you to know that your mum loves you. I thought, no, I just want my mum never to find out. But you see, secrets keep you sick, John, and you're only as sick as your secrets. Yes. And and this is what God needed to get out. And so mum sat opposite me, round table just like this. And and I, I told my mum, but I only told her about one abortion. I said, I had an abortion, mum. And, you know, and my mum just come round the table and she hugged me and she said, do you not know how much I love you? And do you not know how much Jesus loves you? And you need God in your life and you need Rachel's vineyard. And I just told mum to, where to go. Just, you know, come, you'd have to bleep it what I said. You know, I just didn't want to know. Yeah. Is it, and, like, I've know. made this confession, but I yeah. don't want your advice. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just accept it. And um, she turned around and, and like a good mum, ignored me and nagged me for the next eight years. And just kept telling me, you need God, you need Rachel's vineyard, you need God, you need Rachel's vineyard. And then this one day, my broken Rachel that kept breaking with every man and would shatter with every man and never was fixed. All those pieces of the shattered vase were just just sprayed all over the floor and there was nothing left of me. And that's when you either get on your knees or God puts you on your knees. And I rang my mum and I just, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And she said, Rachel, why do you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result? Give yes. God a go. And I just, from that moment, I, my mum just prayed, I'd go to a service on a Sunday. Yes. And uh, I was there every day. You know, and, and the first time I went into church, there was a reading and the, and the first reading I heard from the Bible was the prodigal son. And I just knew I was home, where I was meant to be. And did you feel a sense of release? Uh, yeah, it was the beginning. It, it was, was the, the beginning. It was definitely the beginning of, of that journey. And um, I, I found myself in a, in a, that woman that prayed to me, I hadn't seen her for eight years, yeah. and she's part of a charismatic prayer group. I went to it. 
got prayed with and people were sitting there like that, you know, as they do, you know, God's talking to you. And I was just like, what's he saying? What's he saying? I can't hear it. And I was doing that. I thought, I just, I'm not meant to hear God. And then this old, this lovely couple prayed with me every week for, for weeks. And at the end of all my stories to tell me in sections, they would say, you know, that was awful, Rachel. And I used to have this core truth. It doesn't matter because it's made me who I am. It doesn't matter. And then they prayed with me the one last time. And I just said to God, it doesn't matter. And really clearly God said back, well, it matters to me. And I just froze. And I just knew that I needed to go for counselling. I knew I needed help. I couldn't wait, couldn't like navigate myself out of this darkness completely. And so I went to see a counsellor. And the first thing I ever said to this counsellor was I knocked the door and I said, <laughs> I didn't actually have me uh, took away sectioned. She said, I said, um, God, God wants me here, but I think he's got it wrong. And she just went, okay. So I sat down, told her my life and said, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And she said, well, when was it at its worst? And it was really hard, John. I couldn't pick a, an age. They were all bad. Yes. I chose six. And she said, put little Rachel, who's six, in front of you. And I did. And she went, now tell her it doesn't matter. And I was just like, it mattered. What, what a lie I'd been told that I didn't matter. I mattered. And I mattered to God. Yeah. And that was the beginning of my journey, you know. And then from there, I'm at Rachel. I went to Rachel's Vineyard and... I went all the way over to Ireland. There was a Rachel's Vineyard in England at this stage, but I wanted to go all the way to Ireland because um, I'd, I'd met I'd met a priest of all people yes. in, in, in Bosnia. I wasn't even in England. And I'm chatting about my life to him. And he just turned around. He said, have you had an abortion? I was like, are you a mind reader? And he said, no, I'm part of an organisation called Rachel's Vineyard. And have you heard of Rachel's Vineyard? I went, yeah, every month for the last eight years. So I find myself at Rachel's Vineyard. And the experience of being there? So um, that, so at Rachel's Vineyard, it's a safe place where you can grieve, where you can look at what, you, what happened and how it happened. And we do it through living scriptures. So you have a reading uh, from the Bible. And then, you see, it doesn't matter if you have Sikhs, atheists, you know, Christians, any yeah. denomination. So people come. of faith and no faith, yeah, it's because they you can see, all come. Because at the end of the day, abortion affects everybody and yeah. abortion tears are abortion tears. Absolutely. But, but what's great is you're using the Bible, you're absolutely. using scriptures. So when, you see, so when a Sikh or a Muslim or a non-believer hears the living word of God, it has an impact it does. and they have an experience. So I, I am now being part of Rachel's Vineyard. I see the miracles, but the miracle at my Rachel's Vineyard when I went was um, then they, you'd have a meditation where you're in the story. And then um, then you talk about it in relationship to your, to your abortion. And at the end of Rachel's Vineyard, um, you have a memorial. You see the majority, and I yes. say the majority, the majority of abortions don't have any funerals. I have been to abortion funerals where people have took the remains and put them in the freezer and, and done all sorts, where we've been able to give them you know, the dignity that they deserve and bury them properly. So we have a memorial where you honour your children and you honour who you are in relation to that child. But you see, I went to Rachel's Vineyard. There's always one, and you knew I was going to be the one, didn't you, John? There's always one that comes to Rachel's Vineyard grieving the child that could have been, not the child that was. Yes. And I got to Rachel's Vineyard and I said this out loud. I just said, well, you all went on to be mums and dads and I didn't. And that's why you're crying. And the priest that was there turned around to me and he said, Rachel, 
It's not that you could have been a mum. You're a mum. I don't know just like going, mm-hmm. inside I was screaming, I'm a mum, I'm a mum. You see, I went to Rachel's vineyard, dragging my abortions behind me. And I left Rachel's vineyard a mum of Jude and Paul. You see, I had a problem, John. I, I didn't yeah. want to be a mum. But abortion doesn't end that. Abortion just 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 makes you a, a mum of dead children. It doesn't it doesn't prevent you from being a mum. That's a powerful statement, Rachel. That yeah, abortion doesn't prevent you from being a mum. Just makes you a mum to dead children. Yeah, you know, and that's what I you know. So I picked up Jude and Paul, my sons. You know, at Rachel's vineyard I had a massive experience of them and with Jesus. And I was able to call them my sons and I was able to know that they're in heaven, that they are loved and they love me and they've got nothing but compassion and love for me. I didn't need an aeroplane to come home. I could have flown home, you know, just with my wings. I just was on cloud nine. Well, to quote Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It was like being yeah, born again. Absolutely. And absolutely. you came alive absolutely. as a daughter of, of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I am his favourite. Second place is up for grabs, but I am his favourite. <laughs> and how long, so uh, soon after that, you got involved in the ministry of Rachel's I, I didn't, vineyard. no, because, and the reason I didn't, you see, when I, when I knocked on that counsellor's door and I said, you know, God wants me here, but I think he's got it wrong. And then I realised very quickly that God's got it right and I haven't. I made a pact with God and my pact was to say yes to say yes to anything to do with pro-life work, to do with, you know, I wanted to do Rachel's Vineyard so much, but enable, for, to enable God to work powerfully, to, for me to say yes, I had to be asked. So I never asked to do anything. So, and everyone would say, well, how's Rachel's Vineyard going to hear about you? Well, they did, you know, and it was through, I think I had to do a talk somewhere. I said, yes, you, know, you asked me to come here. I had to say yes. yes. Do you know what I mean? I just, which I'm just absolute pleasure to be here. Yes. But I have to say yes. It's not up to me to choose what I want to do. You know, when people say, I'll pray about that and get back to you. Well, for me, I just pray my way into what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. So I just say, yes, it's easier. And God puts the block on it. And so eight years later, uh, Rachel's Vineyard said, we've heard about you. We'd love you to start a Rachel's Vineyard, which I did. And I uh, started, started in the Midlands. And then two years ago, two and a half years ago, I gave up teaching. And you know, again, a lot of people would pray for hours or weeks or years. And I literally, it was like one prayer, I turned around to my husband, who I'll tell you about in a moment. And, um, and I said, I need to give up teaching. I need to give up work to work for God, which meant earning no money, which meant living on providence. And my husband just said, yeah, okay, if the other way around, I've gone, really, in your own time, get to work. So it was just such a, you know, God's plan. And yeah, I gave up work, gave up teaching, gave up money, and I was never short. No. God always provided. Absolutely. You know? God is Jehovah oh. Jireh, oh, our absolutely. provider. Absolutely. The first day that I went, instead of going to school, I went to church and I sat there and I said, right, so it's all up to you now. You know, I work for you and um, just to put in a holiday, I would really like a holiday right now. I'm exhausted. No, it's day one. And this is just how I talk to God. I said, I'm really tired. I just imagine if my husband can't come, I just need to go away. And I got home that night. I'd had a phone call from Malta and I was asked to go over to Malta and speak in Malta and everything paid for. And I'm just like, 
because I believe God answers your prayers, yes. but he still stuns me the way he does it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you've been involved with Rachel's Vineyard now for how long? Oh gosh, about, it must be about, about eight years, I'd eight say. Eight years. Yeah, about eight and years. You, there are a number of centres throughout yes. the UK. Yes, so, where so, are it they? so it doesn't matter where you go. If you want to go on a retreat, you know, it's, they're all run the same throughout the, the world, actually. So in this country, we've got one in Kent, we've got one in Norfolk, and we've got one in Scotland. And the one in the Midlands, the Birmingham one, we're a charity, so we will try and financially support and support any of the groups. We're the closest of friends. It's not a competition. We just want people to get well. And, and so, they yeah. are throughout the whole world? Yeah, they're throughout the whole world. Yeah, it's in Africa. I'm talking to people in Africa. And I helped start uh, Rachel's Vineyard in Gibraltar. We got that there last year. So, yeah, I was, I was talking at March for Life. I was uh, the keynote speaker. And there were some women there from Gibraltar and they came up to me and said, I know it's really cheeky, but would you ever come to Gibraltar? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and then we started Rachel's Vineyard there. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, would you uh, speak to our audience, particularly anyone that's tuned in at the moment who's had an abortion and is struggling with grief? Okay. Yeah. So if, if you've had an abortion, if you're... If you feel like you're just covered in this darkness, that this cloud will never go, I know how you feel. If you're trying to fix your feelings with food or drugs or drink, I know how you feel. If you are sat there and think that God's mercy isn't for you, it's a lie. It's not true because God's mercy is for all of us. If you believe that you've committed the unforgivable sin, again, it's a lie because God died for all of us. You see, if God can use Moses and David and Paul, he can use you and me. But to get well first is the most important thing. So please reach out, reach out to Rachel's Vineyard. We can support you and help you on your journey of recovery because you are a mom, you are a dad, and you are a grandparent. Rachel, maybe someone just randomly tuned in, but maybe there are people who uh, tune into the programme every week, but some are actually thinking of aborting their babies. What would you say to them? I know it feels like a really scary... I know it feels like really scary to carry on with your pregnancy, you know, because you don't want to be a mum, but you're already a mum. And the problem doesn't go away. You know, when you, when you give birth to your children, you know, the... Oh, the beauty and the love that you're going to miss out on. Don't, don't do it. Don't do what I did because you're going to spend the rest of your life regretting it. My wounds are healed, but I have to carry, I have to stand in the truth every day and say I kill my children. Don't join my group. Be brave, be courageous, be the mom you're meant to be. This is a gift from God and he's chosen you to have this child. Rachel, you were... Uh... You're a trophy of God's grace. You are certainly a prodigal daughter and it's, it's wonderful to hear how the Lord has ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven you and how he's using you and uh, many at Rachel's Vineyard to help many others. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thank you. God bless. Wow. That was... Uh, Bittersweet, I would say. Um, beautiful to hear how the Lord has transformed Rachel and has preserved her and sustained her. 
but also it is bitter, isn't it? Um, hearing the reality of what we're dealing with here. Uh, I pray that the Lord will guide us all. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to be able to let you know that our new resource, How Can I Pray, is available now. This is a book targeted for primary school age children. If we're honest, we all find it hard to pray and it's good to remind ourselves of that beautiful prayer that the Lord Jesus instructed us to pray. This is beautifully illustrated and communicates very simply how we can talk to our Heavenly Father. Can I encourage you to purchase copies for your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, for your churches and help children in their journey of faith. Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.